This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Harmel Academy of the Trades, a community of work, prayer, and study where men seek holiness through high-demand, skilled trades. It's a great way for young men to get started in life by finding God in their daily work. Bring forth the royal diadem, everybody. You're listening to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic and this week monarchical conversation uh, each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, friend, Pillar co-founder, and an Englishman. Ed Condon. And Ed, the reason I'm mentioning that you are an Englishman is that we are recording this podcast um, in the evening, late into the night, as it were, um, on uh, September the 8th, Mary's birthday, the birthday of the Blessed Virgin Mary. But this is a day of mourning for your country, uh, is it not? Uh, yeah. Setting aside quibbles about you calling me an Englishman, but yes, it is It is a day of mourning. It's a sad day. The... Um... The queen is dead. Long live the king. The queen is dead. Long live the king. So Queen Elizabeth II, if you don't know what we're talking about, I guess we're your only source. This podcast, I guess this podcast is your only source of news. But if you don't know what, you, what we're talking about, because this podcast is your only source of news, Queen Elizabeth II, the um, queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, empress of the British. What is she? No, she's not empress of anything anymore. Is she? Queen of Great Britain and Northern Ireland yeah. is the United Thank Kingdom. Thank you. Queen Elizabeth... I thought they laid claim to the whole thing, even though they obviously shouldn't. Queen Elizabeth II, the Queen of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, the Queen of the Commonwealth or something like that, died today at 96. Yeah, a Christian the... woman, um, a fine Christian woman, widely regarded as uh, one of the, uh, uh, the last of her generation of world leaders who um, saw... Her country through the Second World War, through the Cold War, and into whatever it is that modernity is. Queen Elizabeth II died today at 96, and Ed's going to tell us some things about her now. Uh, well, I mean, what can one say? I am I am genuinely, it, it is, the news has uh, has hit my, my household hard. Um, it does, it, it, it in many ways, it doesn't, it would be an exaggeration to say it feels like a, the death of a family member, but it does feel like the loss of a daily presence. I, I do feel to a great extent like the last voice, the last figure of stability and sanity in public life and world affairs has has departed, and that is a that is a deeply sad loss. Um, yeah, you know, both my wife and I are, are very sad. I I, I think. I, I've noticed um, a lot of people in the United States being uh, jocose about the event, uh, making light of it, feeling um, that there are jokes to be made and, and that sort of thing, and approaching the whole thing with a certain ribald thing. And I, I find it very distasteful. I'll be honest with you. I, I mean, it's not to say that you know Americans should have some sort of overt sympathy with the British monarchy as an institution or necessarily any personal attachment to. Elizabeth II, but I mean, it's, it's frankly ghoulish. I mean, it, you know, we're talking about the head of state that reigned for 70 years that, you know, has been around for nearly a third of the amount of time that the United States has existed, um, has been a, a steadying and towering figure on the world stage for much of that. And, and more to the point, it's just, it's just bad manners. I mean, you know, if, if a if a former American president died, um, let alone a, a sitting American president were to die in office, you wouldn't expect that sort of behavior 
from citizens of other countries for no other reason than it's rude. Um, so there's been a bit of that that's been disappointing. But no, it really is. It's sad. I mean, you mentioned that she was a Christian woman, and she was. She was a good Christian woman. Um, and she was uniquely, perhaps not uniquely, but unusually for a world leader, um, she was very public about her Christian faith. She spoke about it regularly. She, in her traditional um, annual Christmas messages, she she was ever more explicit about uh, her personal faith and and the announcement of the person of Jesus Christ as God incarnate and his saving mission for the world. And you don't get that in world leaders very often. And more to the point, just a steadying presence. I mean, I don't think it's possible. We were talking about this earlier, along with Michelle, about the inability, I think, in the American popular psyche to really conceive of what a monarch I was going to ask you about that, because I've heard you say a few times today that you don't think Americans can understand um, what monarchy is all about. And um, I found that to be a fascinating reflection. And I honestly, if we end up talking about the British monarchy for most of this show, that's actually okay with me because I think it's a, a moment worth talking about and I have a lot of questions myself. But I, I'm interested in this idea of yours that Americans don't understand the uh, notion of, even of a monarchy. And I was hoping you might elucidate that for me, elaborate. Well, I don't think they do more. because uh, Americans' understanding of monarchy and specifically the British monarchy is formed almost exclusively by bad Broadway musicals or... Um, well, King Ralph. Know, don't forget about King Ralph. Did you ever see King Ralph? I did see King Ralph, actually. Um, so, King Ralph actually is surprisingly constitutionally nuanced. Uh, <laughs> they, that was actually f- on the on the trailer for uh, for surprise for for King Ralph. It was it was like a in a world where Ralph is king in a surprisingly constitutionally nuanced take, and then he just burps into the you know well, guy's perhaps, hat perhaps, or whatever. Yeah. Um, no, I I don't think that Americans by and large understand what the monarchy is, and I mean you know again. To, to the extent that they are aware of the British royal family, it's through the lens of the National Enquirer most of the time. So, I mean, I understand that over here it's, the royal family is treated as a bit of a soap opera. And to be clear and to be fair, um, some of the cadet members of that family do insist on behaving like a badly scripted soap opera from time to time. But that's not, that is distinct from the institution of the monarchy and what that means to to people in Britain and to other Commonwealth countries of which she is the head of state. I mean, and and part of the reason that I think Americans can't really understand it or conceive of it is because there is no analog in American life. There is no, um, there is no apolitical, not just point of national unity, but point of, um, national identity. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, for example, so a quote that I, I came across today, I was, um, someone who understood the, the, the idea of monarchy and what it means in, in modern Britain and historically in Britain, particularly what was Roger Scruton, and yeah. in his in his elegy for England, um, he he talks about on understanding monarchy as the persona of the country, um, you know, and he he relates it back, and this is this will appeal to you. He he relates the idea of persona back to the Roman law concept of you know um, a, a mask that an individual wears to represent a larger institution, and in this case, the institution is the country itself that the great sort of defining characteristic of Elizabeth's effectiveness as a sovereign and her, the key to her longevity was her ability to completely to completely sublimate herself into the role to say my personal opinions do not matter and must not be known 
my personal preferences do not matter and must not be weighed that you know the crown the role comes over comes over all that this you know pervading sense of duty she brought to to everything she did and and the reason why that means so much is for i think the uk um the queen isn't just a, a third person around whom the country gathers and sort of says, oh, well, this person we can all unite behind. It's not that. The queen, in, the queen, the idea of the monarchy is that it is a stand-in for the country. It is They stand in, in persona for the country, but in persona for the people that the queen in her public life is meant to embody and hold out the, the highest self-image of a people. And so what I think Americans don't tend to understand is when they, for example, make fun of the queen or make fun of the monarchy, they are in effect making fun of the people of the UK because the queen is in effect a a sort of national surrogate for self-identity. One of the things that you sort of chided Michelle and I on, as we were texting with each other, Michelle and I were sort of talking about, well, who would be a good sort of understanding that, the sort of symbolic meaning of the monarchy. If uh, if America if the United States of America had a monarch, who who would be a good candidate? And and Michelle and I were talking, we're, we're mentioning a number of sort of political figures who we thought maybe would be sort of good a qualified candidate to be America's monarch. And you sort of chided us and said the the fact that we were suggesting politicians in the first place sort of belied what you felt was a misunderstanding of the monarchy. And and of course I understand that the, that the role is a political in a certain sense, in another sense, it's civic, right? I mean, it is it's civic. Well, it's civic, but again, to say it's apolitical is to say that that's not just a descriptive characteristic of it. It's a defining characteristic. The nature of politics is it's divisive. The nature of politics is it's one side against another. There is a government and there is an opposition. There's a majority party. There's a minority party. That the the entire conception of politicians is to is to seek validation or election of a majority over a minority, to win people over to one way or another, to participate in a public debate or argument or whatever. And that's entirely anathema to an entirely unitive concept of a person and an office. And I mean, the other thing is, and I think I mentioned this to you and Michelle, um, it's not just a question of someone who's an effective communicator. It has to be someone who is willing to put the idea of themselves to one side so that there can be this national projection of identity onto them. And I mean, you, you just can't do that within the realm of politics. And I think in the United States also, the other problem is it, it comes down to the American obsession with individualism that in the United States, the idea of the president is he's just another guy. Anyone can be president. Anyone could get elected president. And in fact, a lot of the sort of presidential mythos is built around the idea that, for example, a guy born in a log cabin in Kentucky, who's a hayseed country lawyer, can rise to become the greatest of presidents. That the idea that, well, it could be me. You know, that it's not it's not even a question of a gas hairs. It's a question of individualism that can identify it. So, well, I could do that. And, and a kind of then the sort of mythology is is a, is a, the mythology of a meritocracy, like um, not I could do that, but a- anyone could do that. And therefore, the person who has risen to it has risen to it by virtue of their merit and natural capability and accomplishment rather than the ac- an accident of their birth. 
So it's it, right. it it's a very Pelagian mentality. It reinforces the idea that, that we like to hold that America is a sort of meritocratic society or something. Right. And it, but it also it completely belies the notion of vocation, that there is a thing that you're called to do, not that you choose and order your own destiny in every respect, and life is just a buffet of choices, and you should have the full gamut to pick well, from. Well, and it's funny that you say that, because actually that's the way that we do conceive, even in the contemporary American church, of vocation and vocational discernment is all of the things are open to you. And so you sort of make some effective choice based upon your subjective experiences about which of the things is right for you. And that's what your vocation is. And so, you know, not only do we sort of spiritualize it, but we also make it entirely a thing of the of volition. Once there was a time when a person might perceive that they had a priestly or monastic vocation because they were the seventh son and there wasn't going to be a place for them sort of at the, in their father's inheritance and things like that. And I, I'm not convinced that that mode of discernment sort of qua practicality is better or worse than our sort of buffet mode of discernment. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is the buffet mode of discernment. You said that the, the American sort of approach, even within the church and the concept of vocation to say all the options are over me, it's up for me to determine which of them I, I feel called to as it were. Yeah. But that's, that's the mentality that argues in favor of, for example, the ordination of women. Taken to, to say, a, well, taken to a certain kind of extreme. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it, it's the natural end game of that mentality, which is, well, my vocation is internal. My vocation is self-determined and uh, anything that limits my selection is externally imposed and therefore unjust. Yeah. I used and to know so a bishop who, when men said, um, who, when men would tell him I'm called to be a priest, he would say, um, uh, I'll let you know if you're called to be a priest in a very pointed way. And it's clear. And why? Because that is a discernment of the church instead of the person in precisely the way. Sorry, I cut you off there, but I didn't want to lose that. No, no, no. It's to my point. Um, and the idea of, of monarchy requires, um, it, it, it requires you not to have an attachment to the idea of um, total individualism, that you have to be able to accept that, you know, there is, there is a role that is occupied by a person and they are there not because they earned it, not because they wanted it, not because they strived for it and were, you know, beat off several competitors and were able to make it across the line, but because that's their vocation, that they are they are born into it, not in the sense of, therefore, they deserve it because they're of a more elevated state. There's not the impression in the UK or any other country under, for example, the British crown, that would hold that the royal family are cut above everyone else in terms of uh, they're better people or they're more moral or you know anything like that, on the contrary. But the point is, that's their role. And that they, you know, that no one else has the choice to do it for them is weighed exactly against, well, and they don't have the choice about whether or not they like it or not, or whether they want it or not. But that is their role. That is who they are, and they are molded to it. You know, the queen was taught her constitutional place from childhood, that she was fitted to this role throughout her life. And to be able to accept that as the way it has to be for that role to have any meaning and any utility requires you not to approach every individual um, life role as a matter of individual justice. And I just don't think that the American psyche can comprehend that. Okay, but let me ask you this, Ed. I, I, I think that might be so, but this vision of monarchy that you are um, presenting as a sort of ideal version of monarchy is actually born out of concession, right? I mean, like... Um, Monarchs were rulers of things and ruled and governed by fiat and gradually ceded power to 
sort of parliaments and eventually monarchs in the United Kingdom and Great Britain, and probably largely through Queen Elizabeth II and her immediate antecedents, but Elizabeth II sort of shaped what the monarchy would be in the television era and then the internet era, to be sure, um, allowed themselves to become this sort of um, blank slate upon which the national psyche could be projected or imposed or something like that by never sort of expressing a personality or something like that. But that vision of um, monarchy as sort of unifying national symbol is born out of a gradual limitation of the thing's powers at various times into what it is now, right? I mean, like, if you had said what you just said to, I don't know, William the Conqueror or Edward the Confessor or George III even, probably, it would not make a whole hell of a lot of sense to them, right? I mean, it, it's only it's only maybe in the second Elizabethan era that those ideas that you're espousing as sort of essential to monarchy are crystallized. Isn't that so? I don't know that I would agree with that, actually. Oh. I... You you speak of you know a gradual limitation and concession and I mean that has that has been to an extent the trend I would grant you overall but there's been ebb and flow in that I mean you mentioned for example that would be unrecognizable to say Edward the Confessor or William the Conqueror to which I would reply nay nay moose face um, Edward the Confessor and I didn't know this until I actually I was reading a biography of him that I was given for Christmas last year I know uh, you recently read that that's why I teed you up for this. I know, but it, I I was unaware that, for example, he didn't. You know, his father was king, and um, he neither he nor his brother became king on the death of his father. There was there's a whole situation involving sort of half brothers and all, all kinds of convoluted things. But they were not in. They were well. They were the what we would today consider to be the direct line of succession. But they were not proclaimed king um, right away, or indeed for several decades. Other people were in in front of them because there was. Um, what we would today call the House of Lords, but they had a cool Saxon name for it, where basically the king had to be recognized. The king had to be acclaimed. The king had to, you know, derive his sovereignty and his recognition first and foremost from the people. Sure, but In after case, that, didn't he exercise ability. full and immediate ordinary power? No, no, it was very much circumscribed by convention. Um, in in the Saxon era, very much by by sort of Germanic and um, and, and native Britain um, tradition and usage, and then following the Norman conquest, you got a lot of um, Norman usage and also eventually Roman tradition and usage coming in as well. And then, of course, when the pendulum would swing too far, I mean, don't get me wrong, lots of monarchs during what we would call the the Middle Ages and things had a very expansionist direct. Um, full and immediate exercise of reignal power, but that ended up going very badly for them. And we got, for example, the Magna Carta in 1215, if memory serves, under John, which is widely considered to be the first charter of basic civil liberties in the Western world. Uh, and, you know, you said George III. I mean, the, the, no figure is understood less in American popular culture than George III. <laughs> but um, let's put it this way. He did not exercise direct control over government. He had prime ministers, excellent prime ministers in some cases. I mean, no one would but describe he had William. them in a way that no one would say that Elizabeth II actually had. I mean, it, it is a, it's a. It's, I don't think anyone would claim that it was George and not Pitt who was in charge of the government or was conducting the Napoleonic Wars. No, right? but don't you think that nonsense. he exercised a great much, a, a great more, a great deal more uh, of his will? in the sort of application of governmental affairs. I mean, you, you, you are presenting a monarch as this sort of apolitical sort of national psyche or mascot or something like that. And I just wonder how recent that is. And if that's actually an Elizabethan innovation, it's not wrong if it is, but I wonder, well, no, I, I, I guess the, the direction of travel of the image may change monarch to monarch and drifted one way over time. But for example, 
someone like George III, Farmer George, as he was known, was very image conscious and was very conscious that he had to embody and represent what he considered to be the the popular soul of the country, the strength of the country, the sort of yeoman farmer, the the sort of country uh, worker, that that sort of thing. And he, he played into it very heavily. Elizabeth I, bloody Queen Bess, uh, understood that when she was governing a, a country, some would argue tyrannically, uh, through religious repression, also had to forge out of her own unique image and marital status a figure of national unity that people could rally around. But you understand that she was doing something that Elizabeth II could never claim to have been doing. That's my point, governing a country tyrannically, right? So this idea... Well, Elizabeth the, I did, yes. Yeah, so this idea... And maybe your, maybe your point is there's an ebb and flow there and... and there is know, an ebb and flow, yeah, that is my point. Oh, do you, I, I would argue Queen Victoria probably exercised as much control over her government as George III did, and there was quite a gap and a lot of society in between the two. Do you think that we... Is it possible to imagine? It seems probably, for a lot of people, impossible to imagine that we might flow having ebbed. Uh, you say that, but uh, history has a very short attention span. I am old enough to remember an occasion in UK public life in this century, which was the the death, I don't use the word suicide, of Dr. David Kelly, who's probably someone unknown to most of our listeners, if not 99.9% of them. But anyway, Dr. David Kelly was a government scientist and advisor who during the run-up to the Iraq war uh, effectively oh, yeah. he blew the whistle. He was a Welsh scientist, uh, an expert in authority on biological warfare, right? Yes, and he basically blew the whistle on the UK government, led by Tony Blair, on going to war in Iraq on basically made-up pretexts of weapons of mass destruction being present in Iraq. And he died in, let's say, very suspicious circumstances. Mm -hmm. And it was a gigantic scandal. And there was serious speculation in the in the media, informed speculation. This was not, you know, sort of tabloid, oh, what if? But this right. was like serious people were discussing the possibility that the Queen was going to sack Tony Blair over the over the fallout of the scandal, that she was going to ex officio dismiss the Prime Minister by royal prerogative. And no one at the time, so far as I'm able to recall, considered that beyond the pale. And that was what, twenty years ago? Yeah. Twenty years ago it was not beyond um, the popular imagination that when necessary, the queen might exercise her constitutional prerogative to dismiss the prime minister because she viewed the situation to be untenable. And in doing so, she would be providing an outlet, which is, you know, you can have all kinds of debates about the virtues of Britain's unwritten constitution, so to speak. But there was a school of thought and still is a school of thought that says the ability for the sovereign to exercise certain prerogatives in an extreme, almost unimaginable situation is an important outlet in the event of unforeseen circumstances that a written constitution is not flexible enough to deal with. Okay. That's a, that's a, uh, thanks for that example. That's a really interesting one. Let's talk if we can about the King, King George the third, excuse me, <laughs> it's late Ed and we are having some whiskey. King, I was going to say, I know we I've had a few, but I, we I talked I, about him already. King Charles the third, the new King, um, King Charles the third. Let's talk God about save him. him. Yeah. God save him. And From himself. Um, well, far be it for me to know anything about that, but uh, um, based upon a documentary that I saw, a kind of documentary series that I saw, maybe you've seen it too, uh, from Netflix entitled The Crown, um, this George... Another this crime against history. Charles III has had a rather tortured... Yeah, you know, for example, did you know that he... Beca I learned this today. Did you know that Charles uh, III became um, Prince of Wales when he was nine? I thought it became it somewhat later. Well, I, I could have sworn that I read that he became Prince of Wales when he was nine, and that It's didn't, a title of conferral, not right. Yeah, but that didn't... Um, I know, but that didn't jibe 
with um with uh, with the depiction in, in the documentary The Crown at all. Well, no, so hang on. His formal investiture of Prince of Wales happened more or less during his adolescence, his late adolescence. Oh, he was given the title when he was nine, but then he had to wait another 11 years for his investiture, I'm, I'm seeing now. I see. Okay, never mind. That's Would you like to know the history of the title of Prince of Wales for the heir presumptive uh, or heir sure, apparent? Sure, I have some questions, the... but yeah, let's talk about that first because I actually would like to know that. And this is so, an so episode, when... this is a Royal Diadem episode of the Pillar Podcast, so we will probably talk about some church stuff because there's a lot of church stuff going on, actually, but I'm just deeply interested in this, and, uh, and, uh, and I believe that you are too. So, Ed, what's the history of the... Well, so what one we... of the kings... I th- I think it was a William. It might have been a Henry. But one of the the king who was subjecting Wales to the English crown, as it then was, um, in the final, and you know, conquering Wales was hard going. There's there's a lot of hills. The people there yeah. are ferocious. They have ginger beards. They you know they they they're there's angry. So people. many they look, continents. For God's sake. They they look not unlike an angry J D. Flynn on many occasions. Um, yeah. You don't you don't want to mess with a whole bunch of them up a snowy mountain in the dark. Um, so anyway, the the settlement. I wonder if I'm Welsh. Was, oh, did any Welsh men uh, migrate to the to Ireland? I uh, I mean the traffic across. Well, St. Patrick did. That's a very good point, but I don't think he had much issue. In, uh, in no, the he went back. Now. He remember he got free, and then he, he went, went back no, to Wales. No, and no, he went no, back no. To I don't think that he had met progeny in. Oh, I see. Uh, no, I don't. I'm not uh, suggesting that you were descended from St. Patrick. I'm just saying <laughs> the traffic went across the Irish Sea. It's true. Okay. Um, anyhow, go ahead. No, what I was going to say, so the, the terms of pacification that were offered to the Welsh was the the king said that he would make um, a Welsh prince his heir. And they said, well, okay, your terms are acceptable. And he turned around to proclaim his son to be <laughs> Prince of Wales. Um, and so it has been the tradition since then that the, the heir apparent of the throne um, is, is designated the Prince of Wales. Oh, that's really something. It's why the Welsh often have a bee in their bonnet about the monarchy. Henry VIII became Prince of Wales, um, even though he was the second son of Henry VII, because Arthur's wife, um, Catherine of Aragon, was not pregnant. You you know all that. Uh, I know. Uh, I, I've, let's put it this way. I say this without meaning to imply the imply a wider knowledge, but I've forgotten a lot about Henry VIII. Okay, fair enough. Do you know he was... Do you know um, Elizabeth II... Um, God rest her soul. One of her many formal titles and styles was Defender of the Faith. Mm-hmm. That the yeah. the sovereign of the United Kingdom is referred to as Defender of the Faith, and in fact, on the on the money on a on a pound coin, for example, where you will see the sovereign's head and their name, it will say FD after their name to recognize their title as Defender of the Faith. Do you know the origin of that? Why they're referred to as the Defender of the Faith? Because the Roman Pontiff, I think, gave that title to Henry VIII. He did. Henry VIII published because, under his uh, own name. Yeah, but what's his name? Thomas More Ghost wrote him a th- uh, sort of def- apology. Defense track. of the sacraments. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, against Luther. Yeah. The Luther More correspondence is... Uh, have you ever read, maybe in Latin class, the any of the Luther More correspondence? Yeah, that's how I learned all my bad words. It's, yeah, it's really quite quite body. Thomas More had a mouth on him, man. This is a family show where I would repeat some of the more hilarious scatological images um, tossed about in the context of that, uh, thrown against the wall, if you will, in the context of that. Well, he was a politician, Thomas More, so you know. <laughs> That's right. Okay, uh, Ed, I have some more. We are going to talk about some church stuff, and I have, but I have some more questions about the monarchy. Uh, and we oh, will... look, man, it's midnight. I am I am drinking a very very fine um, Scottish whiskey in 
one for the queen and one for the king. So, you know, have at it. We I'm, will talk I'm feeling about expansive. Them. Uh, no, I really, I want to talk about them and we will talk about them, but we will do so after a word from our sponsor. Ed, you know, this episode of the Pillar Podcast is sponsored by the Harmel Academy of the Trades. I don't know if you know very much about the Harmel Academy of the Trades, but it's a pretty cool thing. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people, young people, uh, who are sort of co- what we might say college age. Even the term in this country kind of belies a certain kind of expectation of college as the ordinary thing. But I have known a lot of people in the context of sort of the COVID world um, who are young people who are just without a clear, in a certain way, without a clear direction, often sort of pushed towards college, despite like the escalating costs of college, the fact that college isn't for everyone, and um, not always sort of encouraged to give other kinds of work, dignified, fruitful, productive work, uh, a thought and a consideration. But the Harmel Academy uh, for the Trades exists basically out of the idea of Pope St. John Paul II saying that that human work itself, understanding work and understanding the dignity of work is key to understanding a lot of contemporary social problems. So Harmel Academy is a post-secondary Catholic skilled trade school for men that aims to form men in the gospel of work, they call it, while providing practical training in high-demand skilled trades alongside robust spiritual and intellectual formation. I really like the look of this. I, I was not previously aware of them, but I have done quite a bit of reading on them today, and I think it is very, very cool. I'm I am strongly in favor of the idea of anyone and speaking from personal experience young men considering the trades uh considering uh, the trades as a as a vocation of work for for their lives and and i do i mean anyone who's not seriously questioning the value relative value for money of a university education i think um ought to not to say that it isn't worth the money but just to say you you do need to sit down and count the cost of that and ask what exactly you're going to be getting for your money and and there is a lot, first of all, is there's the question of just simple economics of the the fact that you can make a very good living in the trades. But also, I think even if your intention is to one day perhaps pursue further study, I think you learn a lot from the experience of learning a trade. I mean, I myself took a year between high school and college. I, I learned a trade. I trained as a chef. Um, and I'll be honest with you, it was perhaps the best education I got. Um, certainly out of primary, secondary, or tertiary education, that I learned more about self-discipline. I learned more about work. I learned more about um, self-responsibility. I learned more about just the practice and graft and dignity of how to do a day's work, how to learn to do something. And it stood me in a lot of good stead in various other jobs I've had since then. Yeah, but here's the deal. I I agree with all that. And yet there are a lot of people who would say, okay, but um, uh, a kind of... Um, liberal arts education is uh, so important and so useful and intellectual formation is important. And what's interesting about Harmel Academy of the Trades is that there is, uh, at the center of the program is skilled skilled trades training, uh, hand-on lab and project-based learning and paid apprenticeships. But alongside that is spiritual formation that comes through community living, sacramental life, and um, praying the office with the community three times a day. And alongside that is intellectual formation and integrated humanities curriculum of theology, philosophy, literature, history, and film designed specifically for the vocation of working men. So Harmel Academy for the Trades is a, says it's a community of work, prayer, and study where men can seek holiness through high-demand skilled trades and um, a great way for young men to get started in life by finding God in their daily work. I really like the sound of this. I think it is well worth a look. I, I don't actually know what demo, you know what what section of our listenership is 
is of the age of what I would consider to be school leaver rather than college age. Um, but the sort of 16 to 18 year old bracket, 19 year old bracket, I would assume. But if, if we do have listeners in that age, I would say... Or teachers, do, guidance Harmel- counselors, pastors, parents, yep. all the people who are influential in the lives of uh, 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 young people making dis- decisions and discernments about uh, the next steps in their life. Go Where should they go, Ed? They should go to harmelacademy.org. That's H-A-R-M-E-L, academy.org. We are back. Ed, this is my question. There's something about the queen. Maybe it's just because I'm habituated to a queen, but there's something about a queen like, okay, so the queen as a sort of maternal figure, as a kind of a figure of sort of my, you know, um, my sort of national, a sort of national matriarch feels intuitively right, right? That there's, there's sort of this maternal figure who's caring for the country and loving the country and embodying the country and representing the country. Does a king feel just sort of, to me at least, a king feels different. Like, um, what does it mean for the king in a modern country to be sort of the father of the country? And um, and how will that be different? And what do you expect from the reign of Charles III? And we are going to talk about church stuff, so, you know. I don't know that I buy into a maternal or paternal dynamic necessarily, and I don't think many of the country did either. I don't... Uh, every I've single... Heard... What I love about this episode is that every single stereotypical American notion of monarchy that i have brought to the table you have re- to, in order to ask a question you have just rejected the premise and i'm glad for that because i'm already it goes to my premise that americans don't understand goes to anything your promise, about the, the premise that americans don't understand anything about the monarchy go ahead we'll put it this way look elizabeth came to the throne at the age 27 nobody nobody looked to her at that point as the mother of the nation true and through the through the what, what we might call well by the time people were speaking of a second elizabethan era um she was not, I would say, of of motherly so much as grandmotherly age, and I have heard her heard her referred to as sort of a national grandmother mm-hmm. figure. Yeah, but no, I don't think that. Um, I, I don't think at any point in her reign. I don't think during, for example, um, say the fifties through eighties, that people by and large viewed her as a national mother figure at all. On the contrary, um, those were in fact the very the probably the most difficult years of her reign in terms of finding her place in in the national landscape and defining her role for herself and for everyone else that was when she had the hardest time um no i think the idea of the monarch as a as a national parental figure is is not right at all because again that presumes that the monarchy is a third person and that's that's the mistake what do you keep you keep saying that but i don't understand what you mean by that a third presume a third person that the this, the identification of the people with the crown is not I thou, it's I I. I see that it's a that it's a self identification. That when the when the English and this is actually something else Roger Scruton wrote, that when an English person toasts to Queen and country or to King and country, they are toasting to themselves effectively. That they are toasting to the people of whom they are part and the place that they are from. That it's a self-identification. It's not a question of this other person, this third person to whom we all can sort of pledge allegiance. It is a common identity. It's not a common identifier. But then that, but then the, in that sense, then the monarch has nothing but to affirm. The, and I don't think this is even true of the legacy of Elizabeth II. Then the monarch has nothing but to affirm the trends and and uh, dispositions of the person, or the sort of um, the monarch does not become a sort of person who can be formative in the culture of a people or the identity of a On people. the contrary, you, it's not a question of affirmation, it's a question of being an exemplar. That the queen, and if you ask, and uh, um, you know, Lord knows the BBC have done little else today, um, 
go out and ask people and say, what did the queen mean to you? And people say, she's a role model. She's someone to aspire to behave like. And they don't mean the person Elizabeth Windsor was this, you know, fantastic um, person in their private life that we know so much about and would like to be friends like the way she was a good friend to people or anything like that. What they mean is that she embodied and lived and exemplified uh, a concept of service, a concept of putting others before yourself in your sense of duty to which the country aspires and to which the country broadly identifies that, you know, the, you have these sort of outdated, um, somewhat caricaturish ideas of what the quote unquote English or British are like about, you know, being sort of emotionally repressed and all that other sort of stuff. And that's not how people in the UK think of themselves, but they do think of themselves as somewhat stoic, somewhat hardworking, somewhat willing to put others first, that these are all qualities that, they like to think they have in themselves and they value seeing them projected as a, a sort of national consensus self-portrait. And that is the, that is what the queen did so well. All right. Well, what do you expect? Uh, where, we, what, what do you expect about the uh, reign of, uh, of uh, Charles III? I honestly have no idea because the problem with Charles has always been that as Prince of Wales for longer than I think anyone else has ever been in the role, He's let a lot more of himself leak out than any of his predecessors did because there's just been the time for it. Yeah. And so the avenue of donning the mask, the persona, the national persona is not as available to him. Now, that isn't to say that he can't make a good go of it. I mean, um, Queen Victoria's son and heir, Bertie, was a notorious drunk and gambler and womanizer and wastrel, and he turned out to be quite a perfectly good king because he was able to transition into the role and accept the, the responsibilities of it reasonably well. Um, so I, I don't know what to expect from, from his majesty, the king. We will see, I guess. I, he's at a, you know, he's, he is himself somewhat advanced in life. He's not at the age at which people normally embark upon. Right. Um, yeah. He's 73 years the, old. He needs to submit his resignation to the Pope in just two years. Indeed. Yeah. Um, we will see. I, I hope, I mean, I am, I, I am actually legally obliged by an oath I took uh, at the age of, I guess I was 17, um, to bear true and faithful allegiance to him. And, and so I shall, within the limits of conscience and the Holy Catholic faith. But I hope that he as I will see that the best way to honor the legacy and lifetime of service of his mother is to serve and preserve and honor the institutions and traditions to which she gave her life. One of the things that I was struck by in his initial statement, which he issued just shortly after the death of his mother, although I suspect it had been long waiting um, in a file called Stuff to Issue, One-Time King, um, his initial statement was devoid entirely of Christian reference. And, uh, you know, I think a characteristic of Charles as an adult has been that he has not espoused uh, a Christian faith. In fact, there was a time when he talked about wanting to be defender of faiths rather than defender of the faith, even though he's the head of the Church of England. Um, has he dropped that idea, and do you think that he will be a... Uh, look, I mean, there's a... Uh, whatever you think about the Church of England, there's a very unusual relationship between a secular monarch and the Church, of which he is at least titularly... It's not head. a secular monarchy. That, I that understand that. that. No, I didn't say a secular monarchy. I said a secular monarch. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, that exactly. And I think this will be the first interesting thing is when the coronation comes, what will it look like? He has spoken in the past airily 
of wanting to see faiths represented in the coronation, which would be a liturgical nightmare. Um, I mean, usually, the, you know, if you go to a good Episcopal installation, usually at the Vespers the night before, there's a whole ecumenical to do where representatives of various faiths can greet the new bishop. And then at the actual installation or Episcopal consecration, it, it's a holy Catholic ceremony. And one would think that perhaps the same thing could be done for an investiture, a, a coronation, which is to say that at the Vespers the night before, there could be any number of ecumenical greetings, and then the thing itself could be an Anglican ceremony, given that this is an Anglican country and a religious ride and that kind of thing. Well, and he is... Is the, are the, the, is the crown an Anglican sacramental? Uh, the crown is not an Anglican sacramental, but the there is a sacramental anointing with holy oil as part of the coronation. Anointing with holy oil as a sacramental, not a sacrament. Yes, okay. correct. Not as a sacrament, but as the the imparting of a, of the sacramental that is holy oil. Interesting. So, I mean, so that's one way I suppose it could be done, but I suspect that Charles will probably opt for something a bit more religiously inclusive than that. You say that, but again, um, who knows? Because you you say, you know, if you're if you are, and I don't think this is disrespectful to the king to say. If you are, if you spend your life waiting for a role that never seems to arrive, and you spent your life in preparation for doing a job that it seems like you may never be given the chance to do, it it can be a prompt to to radical daydreaming about how you would do things differently if and when you were ever given the chance. And when the moment comes, you may find that your appetite to be a radical reformer or departure from tradition recedes somewhat sure and actually what you want to do is be a true and faithful servant to the institution which has been entrusted to you do you ever that's my hope ed i mean do you ever in a certain sense find yourself thinking about what you would do if you were the host of the pillar podcast and the way in which you might do things radically different from my the glorious reign which i have enjoyed as the host of uh, no show. because i'm not riddled with the rank american individualism that requires me to project <laughs> myself into the life and role of everyone else i would like else. you to I'm be the host of happy the in my station i would like you but to be the I, host of the i Pillar know Party. my place jd and it is a happy one for me and i am fully satisfied therein you on the other hand want to chuck it all in go to california cut a netflix deal and record a <laughs> podcast with your um, you know, with the girl you met on the on the on the sea lot set of uh, budget legal oh, drama. Oh, for God's sake! Um, okay, well, that's. Uh, is there anything more you'd like to add about the monarchy before we move on to talk for just a few moments about ecclesiastical things? Uh, no, no, I think I'm good. I'm. I'm going to be. It's going to shock you, but I'm going to be writing about some of this in my newsletter. I'm sure. What's all this stuff about Charles taking money from? Saudi dictators and stuff? Oh, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I. Every now and then the newspapers like to gin up a fuss about, uh, you know, some some billionaire or other or some millionaire or other will give money to a charity that is uh, either uh, of direct concern to the Prince of Wales, now the king, or of which he is patron and that somewhere down the line they get a gong, they get a, a royal recognition, they get a medal of some kind, they get an order of some kind. And that's the point of them. That's why they have an honors system is to reward philanthropy. That's the whole purpose. They're a money-raising thing. The entire rank of baronet, which is a kind of hereditary knighthood where you get to be called sir and then your son gets to be called sir when you die. They created these things as a revenue raiser for the royal coffers. So, yeah, every now and then the Guardian likes to get itself in a fearful sweat about, you know, Prince Charles took money from this person for his charity and then he, you know, he gave them a he gave them a medal. It's like, That's what he's supposed to do. He raised money for charity. What do you want? I do 
Yeah. You know, one thing that I have been thinking about a lot is that Charles will have a real challenge in his uh, early in his reign because, you know, Britain, as you probably know, is going through an extraordinary kind of um, uh, fiscal crisis where the cost of living is increasing dramatically. And I believe that the new prime minister rolled out a sort of reform package today. But this is going to be a very, very hard winter economically for Britons. And, um, you know, it's interesting the king will have to express, I suppose, and demonstrate some solidarity with them. But solidarity for a king is a tricky thing, it seems to me. I was thinking about this today. It, 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 the king can, um, can express solidarity with people who are kind of going through a very difficult economic time, even though he is not. And so there's a way in which that's not total and complete solidarity. At the same time, he, he's wealthy, but he can't um, offend people's dignity by just sort of a uh, in a manner like Oprah kind of just coming and saying, you know, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, just sort of dispensing charity in a way that's ostentatious and, uh, or dispensing things, handouts, giveaways in a, in a way that's ostentatious and might sort of undermine the dignity of people or suggest that he's playing favorites or something like that. So he has to express a certain kind of uh, sympathy or solidarity, encourage people who are in a situation of hardship, even while he is probably not feeling that hardship anywhere near the way in which others are unless he unless he does feel the hardship i mean this is the the foundation of the modern monarchy's popularity and place in the national psyche was world war ii where uh as a young woman queen elizabeth and her father as king very much shared the privations of sure. the nation during the blitz and refused to leave london and be evacuated and insisted on staying and touring the bomb sites and living on rations the same as everyone else and that that sort of royal solidarity is not impossible and done well is the thing that can cement a link between the monarch and their people. So what would that look like for Charles in an upcoming hard winter for? I don't know. And respect for the institution forbids me from speculating on what Charles's efforts to that end might look like. <laughs> I mean, it would be, it seems unlikely that the, that the, that Buckingham palace or Sandringham or whatever is going to be without heat artificially as a gesture of solidarity. Well, some of the royal palaces are famously drafty. I yeah, sure. Okay. All right. Speaking of a lot of uh, escaping hot air, Ed, let's turn our attention now to Germany, uh, where... Um, <laughs> oh, well played, sir. Thank you. Where there was a major unexpected um, uh, development today at the German Synodal Path, where... Um, which is unfolding in a series of meetings between German bishops and representatives of lay people and um, and clerics and religious in Germany. And uh, during a meeting today in Frankfurt, when um, the Synodal Path voted on a document that called for sort of a rethinking and reforms of Catholic sexual morality, um, the document overwhelmingly passed the sort of popular vote of the assembly, but it did not get enough votes from bishops to pass and become an official resolution of the Synodal Way. So the call for a rethinking of sexual morality, which better reflected apparently scientific developments on sexual morality and which rejected the idea that, I understand that, but that's what the document says, I see the face you're giving me, and which rejected the idea that certain sexual acts are intrinsically immoral or something like that, was rejected by the bishops. And, and that was totally, at least for us, unexpected. I, I don't think anyone was thinking that the bishops would make a, that there would be a stand from the bishops that rejected the sort of popular sentiment of the synodal way that has been long sort of germinating in Germany. Yes, it was an unexpected um, rolling back of the tide, or at least um, valiant effort to try and hold it back. I mean, let's be clear, it's not that the bishops en masse banded together and rejected an agenda item that was manifestly... No, it's just that 40% of the bishops who were there at the Synodal Way didn't vote 
for the thing, which ended up being 20 guys, basically, or 21 guys. Or 21 guys, yeah. I think it was 61% of the bishops, though, did vote right. for it. So that's... It couldn't marshal enough support for bishops, from bishops. Yeah, they, they couldn't get the two-thirds majority they needed for this thing to acquire effectively ecclesiastical authority because, I mean, this has always been the sort of quiet part they aren't speaking out loud is because Rome screamed at them a million times, you can't do this, you can't have this sort of, you know, power-sharing lay partnership parliament this is to- and this is don't, don't worry we've got a thing where you know we have these votes and they're but they're consultative the bishops themselves constitute a separate college within the voting and the and in line with the bishops conference norms you have to have two-thirds majority to be able to do anything interesting and all that stuff um and in this case they failed to get that two-thirds majority and as you pointed out to me there was the the scene of um one lay synodal participant in germany who <laughs> who said so much for, so the, much separation for the separation of, of powers <laughs> See, in holy no, mother no, church this there is, is exactly no separation this. of powers in holy mother church whatsoever well, no, but in this is exactly the perfect separation of powers in the church which is the bishops have it and you don't right that's right, the fair, separation fair that you never understood that's to begin fair. with and that's not uh that's not something Are you flagging there partner uh, that's just rooted in our. I, th- I think we maybe talked about it in the show last week. That's just rooted in our theology, in our in our theological yeah. understanding of the, of the of the significance of sacred orders and the hierarchical constitution of the church. We cannot have a sort of constitutional reform of the church because the church is um, constituted by will, Christ. In, instituted by Christ, exactly Christ the Lord, who who made um, his apostles and their successors um, in in positions which exercise both a teaching authority and a sacramental and sanctifying authority and a governing authority over the life now, of the church. the interesting thing, and I haven't written about this yet, and I have to write about it in the morning, which is as I get deeper into this bottle it's of Glen Levitt. coming soon. I feel like Dawn is going to crest upon us. Coming sooner than I would soon. like. But my my question is, to what extent is this a, is this a, a temporary setback for the synodal agenda? Because... I mean, you've had no no less a figure than Cardinal Marx sort of denounce this result as a great disappointment, um, and and also everyone's been very upset that it's a secret ballot, so they don't know who the bishops are who who stopped this, and they've said this is terrible. These cowardly bishops um, refuse to stand up and you know defend their views in the assembly. In other words. Who is this minority? Wait, so uh, we- come and tell you. Come and tell us who you are, so that we might strike you. Um, yeah, it was very. Make your point about that, and then I have a point about that as well. Yeah, I. I, I but I wonder um, to what extent this, this, these twenty-one bishops are going to be able to hold back the, the tide of the of the synodal agenda. Because I mean, the course has been set very clearly from day one. Um, you know, we had all these protests and demonstrations on the floor of the synodal hall. Afterwards, today, which, after the vote didn't pass, they sang yeah. a song. They prayed a psalm of lament, and they sang a song of protest as a, corporately as a body. And Bishop Georg Botzing said, "This was amazing." The president of the German Bishops Conference said, "Well, I am convinced. Obviously, when the thing didn't pass that everyone wanted to pass, I am convinced. Obviously, that synodality hasn't. We haven't yet learned fully the lessons of synodality. In other words, if we were good at it, the outcome we wanted would have been passed. It was just yes. <laughs> well, uh, despite the whole." sees frequent protestations to the contrary. What true synodality is, the German lesson seems to be, is popular democracy. That's what it means. That's right. And everybody heard me say lots of things about how, how optimistic I am about the, synod- about the synod on synodality as an opportunity last week, but I'll say at the same time, anything which reinforces the idea that the church is a democratic institution is unfair to people. It's manifestly unfair to people. Do you know why it? Because it sets up expectations and hopes um, 
it, it sets up expectations and hopes for people that their own sort of theological ideas will be um, affirmed or will be validated instead of orienting people towards a disposition. I need to be oriented towards the disposition that I'm going to be formed by my mother, the church, instead of that I get to form her after my own image. And it's, it's, it's completely unfair. I think consultation is hugely important in the life of the church. I love a good diocesan pastoral council. I've been to the meetings of many diocesan pastoral councils and similar consultative bodies, and I think they're important. But there's a difference between consultation and sort of democratic elections. And, and the latter are, are not appropriate on, on matters of the church's teaching authority. And anything—it's a lie to tell people something to the contrary, and then it sets them up to be bitter and angry towards the church for not being what— she never was. I, I agree with you, but on on your point of saying it sets people up for disappointment, I wonder, because in in this case, I was talking to a friend of mine in Rome today shortly after the announcement of these results was made, and they said, you know, the Germans always do this. They The German bishops always do this. They They spend a period of years building up expectation, you know, insisting we're on your side, we want a wholesale revision of the church's teaching on faith and morals, we're with you, we will do this. And then they build it up to an event like this. And they take and away comes, the football. And then the then the whole souffle collapses, and they say, I'm sorry, Rome stopped us, what can we do? And then sort of reset the clock and start the whole thing over again. But I wonder if, pardon the metaphor, the shit won't go back into the horse this time. Because... You know, the, apart from the disposition of the people sort of demonstrating on the floor um, of the synodal hall and, you know, how how amusing that could look. But the bottom line is the vast majority of the synodal attendees are in favor of this. A, a clear majority of the German bishops are in favor of this. The leaders of the German bishops, visibly their most senior bishop, Cardinal Reinhard Marx, and the president of their bishops' conference, Georg Batzing, are in favor of this. I don't know that this is just going to go quietly away and say, oh, well, we didn't no, have I don't the votes so too bad. No, I don't think so either. Especially because the, 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 the entire agenda, when this thing didn't pass, the entire agenda was jettisoned so that everyone who wanted to could come to the floor for more than two hours. I watched this, and it was really something. So that anyone who wanted to could come to the floor and say how their feelings were hurt by what had happened. And then there was... There, the bishops were going to have a closed-door meeting called for by Botsing, I believe, to sort of talk about what they had done, I think, for the 20 to get finger-wagged. And then the lay people were going to have a, uh, a meeting after dinner to which the bishops were pointedly not invited, I mean, spokenly not invited, at which lay people would talk about how they would proceed. And many people said that they were going to leave the Synod away altogether because they had been they had learned that it was an undemocratic thing. And tomorrow... That would be a is, true action of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but tomorrow, which is now coming pretty soon... The, the organizers of this thing, the co-presidents, a layperson and a bishop, are going to have to have some plan, and the the, the, the Synod Away participants are not going to let them just move on to the next vote. I mean, I will not be surprised if—I I, I don't know what to expect. I'm glad we have our—I'm uh, glad we have our senior correspondent, Luke Koppen, in more or less the same time zone as Germany so that he can pay attention to it and report on it in the morning to the extent that we need to know about it. But no, it's certainly not going to go away. You're absolutely right about that. Now— uh, but I don't. But I mean, know here's the thing: expect. the Germans have a long, a long established and even recently established track record of not taking no for an answer. You know, when the German bishops floated up to the then Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith that they wanted this to, question of yeah. bless same-sex unions, um, as they had previously done, and we want to give communion to Protestants, and they were told no. I thought you were going to say the same thing about that running 
pre-abortion counseling centers. Do you know about that situation? Also running, yes, yes, running effectively abortion referral clinics. Um, Anyway, every time the Germans are told no by the Vatican, they just kind of go, oh, yeah, we we hear you. We hear you. We're going to keep talking about it. And by week, we're going to keep talking about it. What they mean is we're going to actually do it anyway. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, you know, when they said no to the blessing of same-sex unions and churches, 300 German priests staged a day of protest and blessed Hundreds of same-sex couples, unions in Catholic churches up and down the country. And I just, I I, I would love to think, J.D., and the, I'm called, as as we all are, to the, to the Christian virtue of hope, um, to believe that the Holy Spirit can act on the German synodal process and perhaps cause the whole thing to just go off the rails and collapse. But I, I do worry that this has just gone too far this time, that this is not a balloon that the German bishops can just sort of let the air out of and then say, don't worry, we'll reinflate it in three years and do this all over again. I, I, I feel like they've broken the gravity barrier here. It was certainly today an indication that for a lot of people, a, a lot of people who are on the floor of the synodal way affirmed today we do not wish to be in a church that does not capitulate to what we want. And here's something, Ed. I actually, you know, we had a story this week about a proposal in Germany for, uh, in the Diocese of Paderborn, I think, for, or something like that, for Paddington. What is it, the Diocese? Absolutely butchering. What is it, the Diocese of Paddington or whatever? You know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, for the love of Mike <laughs> J.D. What is That's, it? Tell me the name of the diocese. It, oh, it's just shameful. Paderborn. Isn't that what I said? Paderborn. Yeah, fine. Okay. We had a story this week about a proposal in the Archdiocese of Paderborn where, uh, whereby lay people would be involved in choosing candidates to nominate to the Pope, you know, to present to the Pope for the possibility of Episcopal appointment. And, um, and, then, and then validating the shortlist that comes back. Yeah. We should explain. Uh, German dioceses get their bishops in a very strange way because the— Some German the former- dioceses, Prussian, Prussian dioceses. Yeah, basically because Germany is made up of what was previously 375 or so principalities, duchies, and sundry baronies. Um, And when this was all sort of bundled together under various concordance, but three principal ones uh, that sort of recognized certain rights for the church in Germany vis-a-vis the Holy See, but also the church in Germany vis-a-vis the secular power, um, many German dioceses effectively have the right of presentation of right. um, candidates for their own bishops. So the cathedral chapter or a similar institution will provide a long list to the Holy See. The Pope will return a short list of three approved candidates from whom uh, the German diocese can effectively, through their chapter of canons or similar, can Suggest effectively elect the preferred their own bishop. one. The Pope remains the Pope remains in, th- in control. So so they they still the are final. Yes, the Pope the final has to give it out to it. And I actually, I saw a lot of people who were responding to this story saying, this is abysmal, this is abysmal, this is abysmal. I was not scandalized by this at all. Why? Because it's consultation. Um, it, it, uh, it, the, Pope doesn't, the Pope doesn't have to honor the right of presentation. He can appoint who he wants. It's a kind of high-level consultation which, which allows people to make nominations as suggestions to the Pope, sort of pointed suggestions to the Pope, and the Pope can do what he wants. I, I'm not... That doesn't interfere in the hierarchical constitution of the church in a way that presumes a kind of power on the part of baptized lay people that they don't have or anything like that. I, I wasn't scandalized by it at all. I'm perfectly glad, actually, to see ways in which lay people 
um, might be more concretely and meaningfully consulted in the governance of the life of the church, and especially, and and especially women, because I think it's hugely important that there be perspectives that are not only the perspectives of of, uh, of men, and uh, not only the perspective of celibates in the context of of ecclesiastical decision making. Some of the best sort of bishop senior staffers and cabinet members whom I have known have been people who are not clerics. I think there's a lot to that kind of consultative thing. But there's a categorical difference. It is not a difference of degree, but a difference of kind between that and um, an insertion of a sort of democratic social process into the proclamation of the teachings of the church um, or an articulation of the teachings of the church. There is, uh, again, the mission of the church is to work within the parameters of the church which Christ established. And part of that is to understand, okay, what actually is the church which Christ established, and um, to, to, make, to be able to make distinctions and to be able to say a great deal of consultation is not the same as decision-making, and consultation is a good thing. But if we believe in the sacraments, then we believe that orders confers certain capacities and powers, which include the exercise of governance in the life of the church. And that's the part that, again, as I say, degree not kind— is uh, is jettisoned in the way that people responded to what happened in the synodal way to 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 say well um, we have given our voice and these bishops have not heard it and therefore their action their episcopal action is illegitimate which I heard from people in the synodal way over and over and over today is a rejection a concrete rejection of this sort of do- sac- sacramental doctrine of the church with regard to the nature of holy orders. It's also a rejection of the unity of principle of hierarchy. Y- yes, it is. Which is a which is a constitutive element of schism. Uh, yes. It can be a, just saying. Yes, it is a constitutive element of schism. And so there is a real danger. I mean there is the and we've been saying this all along and I don't want to be hyper I don't want to bring hyperbole into this or sort of drama nope. into this or something. We said like we that. were not gonna be hyperbolic, but we said we were gonna be bollock. We said we were gonna be yeah. bollock. That's right. <laughs> I had forgotten that we said that we did say that we we're gonna be bollock. And the bollock reality here is that schism is the refusal of submission to what, Ed? The Roman pontiff, the Roman or the pontiff and the bishops in communion with him. And honestly, now that has to be declared by a competent ecclesiastical authority. But the, the sort of substance, the materiality of it, it would seem to me, a constitutive element of it is people who stand at the floor of an ecclesiastical thing and say, we reject your authority and your decision-making. And that, that certainly happened today. Would you say that, that was, they, were, they were in material, if not formal, schism? I would. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think there was the material for schism there. So okay, I. That, that's great. Now you, JD has admitted that it, someone is in a material, uh, st- intellectual state. I I feel <laughs> wow. It's amazing what we can get done at two forty one or twelve forty one a.m. Possibility I, of Delix. I truly believe in the possibility of Delix, and we shall no, see you believe now. Believe in the possibility of Delix. I just uh, I, I you've. It's always been you know. No, I just I I, I find your reading. I of believe the law. in the possibility of seeing oh, angels, stop. JD. But I, I find just never thought I'd the, do it. I, sometimes your reading of the law is so creative. I mean. Gosh, where were we recently where you gave such a creative interpretation of the law that I honestly, I had to just, I, I, I had to, we were at some event together and you started off. I don't remember what it was, but I do, I do remember I did walk do that away. very consciously. I mean, I just, I could not, I, I could not conceive of what you were doing with your. No, I, oh gosh, what was it? it was, we, we've been to a lecture on penal law of some kind and I suggest, oh. I, I do remember I suggested a reading of the law that was to just, you, like in a note that we passed to the back of 
basically at the back of class. Oh, and yeah, you just, it was out. It was totally outlandish. And I was like, uh-huh. it was, but I did it self-consciously. Like, you know, if I were prosecuting this, I'd make this argument. You were yeah. like, you're insane. No, you were insane then. Um, but, but what, what really That's matters why I'd now. I'd make a great prosecutor. Nobody ever, I've only ever been a defense attorney. Nobody wants me on the prosecutorial side of the ball. What really matters now is what the Roman pontiff, I mean, th- this has been, I think a, uh, this, I, I mean, it's this has been to me Ed, it seems in a certain sense today what happened at the synodal way um i don't know it's something of a magano line in my view and no, you're misusing it you're borrowing a metaphor from my <laughs> newsletter borrowing a metaphor from your newsletter and misusing it. okay well this has been i think uh, something of a line in the sand and uh for all of the talk about what will the Roman Pontiff do, I mean, yeah, there is a there is the the the, the synodal way process is now at a crisis point, and I oh, I don't no, I think you're misreading it. I don't think the Roman Pontiff will do anything on this. I think everyone in Rome, at least in a public and official capacity, will say, well, this is the process working. The synodal way in tried to do bishops. something. Yeah, the, the the synodal way tried to do something that was absolutely beyond the pale. It tried to touch universal teaching on faith and morals, and the bishops. Stopped it from happening. By stopped it, they mean a minority of the bishops. Well, the bishops did stop it from happening. But what's about to happen for the synodal way is that they're not going to be seated in an ordinary way tomorrow. So great that the bishops did the right, did the thing, did the thing. But tomorrow, I expect, will mean chaos at the at the assembly hall in Frankfurt. And if there's one thing they don't like in Frankfurt, it's chaos. And so I don't think no, they do not like. Chaos. They don't. They like order. They don't. And so, you know, um, I they think they like to neatly count the votes, and at the end, the predetermined victor wins. <laughs> I think it's very likely tomorrow that a sizable um, number of the of the um, uh, that a sizable number of the participants and even the leaders of the thing will declare it to be uh, completely illegitimate. Well, we live in hope. Yeah. Well, there you go. Okay, Ed, uh, we are going to uh, call it. Listeners, we will be back next week with... Uh, I like doing these nighttime shows, but I don't know if you like them. So we will be back next week with a show. And By um, you, you mean the listeners, not me, right? <laughs> no, I know. I know you're having a great time, but uh, I don't know. I am, but I could write a newsletter in the morning, and I've had rather more of this than I, I have to. I have a, to file a story in the morning that pertains to something that's happening in the morning. And so my plan was like, well, I'll do the show, and then I'll get up at 5, and I'll write the thing. But I think I'm going to get up at six and write the thing at any rate uh you have been listening to dear listeners to the pillar podcast and this week's episode of the pillar podcast is brought to you by harmel academy of the trades a community of work prayer and study where men seek holiness through high demand skilled trades a great way for young men to get started in life by finding god in their daily work check it out at harmelacademy.org and ed of course the pillar podcast is a production of pillar media and ed and jd production i'm your host and pillar editor-in-chief jd flynn and i am joined by my podcasting partner and morning englishman Oh, one question. Did you guys hang up like black bunting in your house? That's what I was wanting to ask. Like the English have a ritual for things. And I feel like that's a very good kind of cultural jigging that helps you know what to do at a moment of Christ. So did get out the box that says black bunting and hang it up around the house today? I mean, is the baby wearing black? Is the baby wearing black, Ed? We haven't hung black bunting, but I did hang um, a black ribbon border. We've had, we've had uh, since the summer, we've had a, a flag for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee which is a Union Jack with her with her face and the years of her reign um, written underneath it in subscript. And, outside? And I did put You've a had black... that hang outside of your house? Absolutely. Wow. And um, we, we did put a black border around that, yeah. Wow. Well, God rest the queen. God save the king. <laughs> <laughs>